AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. We went from normal life, healthy child, to acute lymphoblastic leukemia, or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Frank Crail made a decent living as a tech guy in California. But he and his wife craved a sweet life in a small town. So they pack up and opened the Rocky Mountain Chocolate Factory in Colorado. And the early days of this company's history were tempered with bittersweetness. Despite positive strides, a combination of undercapitalization and a lack of know-how meant this company spent many years just struggling to stay afloat. How did Frank prove that the candy man can? Let's find out. This is Rocky Mountain Chocolate Factory on the brink. Hey, everybody. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Ariel Kasten. So uh, this is a pretty sweet subject we're covering today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a candy store and one that has made some big strides. And yet I had never heard of it before. Yeah, it's actually one that has become one of the largest candy companies in the world. And that's saying something when you consider that it's it's relatively young compared to something like Godiva. Yeah, and, and C's. C's and, candies, yeah. yeah. So we're really going to explore the story behind this because it's, it's one of those that's sort of remarkable in the sense that a lot of these stories we try to do on the brink lead up to a single big moment that you can point at and say this mm-hmm. was the make or break. In this case, we're talking about a company that – could have gone out of business for much of its early history. Yeah. And only through perseverance and maybe some stubbornness <laughs> uh, and perhaps not knowing any better, the company was able to succeed. So, uh, oh, spoiler alert, this company succeeds. Yes. And, you know, to start it all off, I'll say they have an enormous 53,000 square foot factory now in Colorado where they started. And they started off with one tiny little candy shop. So. Yeah. Let's kind of get into that. 
as we said with the introduction, it all started with Frank Krill, and he was a tech guy. Yeah, he uh, came out of uh, San Diego, California. Mm -hmm. His mom worked in retail. His dad was working in the aerospace industry. He would buy parts. He was like a... Mm -hmm. In that supply chain section for aerospace. So, Crail goes to college. After college, he ends up joining the Army. And this is in an era where we have the Vietnam War. He gets yes. deployed to Okinawa. And there he would work in an Army intelligence unit. Mm -hmm. So, for the second time, I think, in the Brink storyline, we are covering a tech guy who has links with the CIA. The first yes. time would be with Oracle. And also, you know, somebody who went and worked for the Army and then did a complete turnaround afterwards. So he worked for the CIA when he came back from the Vietnam War. And then he launched his own company called CNI Data Processing in 1972. And they did billing for cable companies. Yeah, cable television companies, which mm -hmm. were just starting to really become a thing in those early 70s. Yeah. So he was essentially saying, well, this is going to be a big business. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to build a company that works in the background of that industry. So this mm -hmm. was not, you know, a consumer-facing company. This was something that ran the back-end system, the yeah. billing system for these larger cable companies. And, you know, he actually did pretty well. He was making a decent living. But he and his wife, they wanted to start a family, mm -hmm. and they wanted to raise their family in a small town. Yeah, they wanted to have sort of that idyllic mm -hmm. Americana approach that we always think of. We associate that with, like, Walt Disney. Yes. Who had that same sort of fascination with small-town America. Yes, and, and you know— Opening this candy store was a part of that idyllic picture. It would turn out that way. Yes. But when he when he made this decision, like, first they settled on the community. They, mm -hmm. they went about this in a way that is totally backwards from how I would do it. They started off by finding a little town they liked. It was Durango, Colorado. And they had a population, uh, reports vary between 12,000 and 15,000 people. At that time. Yes. Yeah, so we're talking like the 1981 at this point. Yes. So they moved there with the intent that this is where they're going to start their family to really kind of start this new chapter of their lives. And then, and only then, is Crail thinking, all right, well, I need to come up with some sort of business I can do while I'm here because I'm going to end up divorcing myself, like, to, to leave the company I founded. Yeah, and, and I want to start a business that'll help me get to know the other people in this town. Part of the draw of a small town is knowing all your neighbors and yeah. having that community. Having that, that sort of uh, Andy Griffith show kind of relationship with everybody. Yeah, and so he got to the town and he started asking around, well, what sort of businesses do you need? And the one thing that everybody agreed on was that they needed a car wash. Car wash. Working yeah. on the car no. We're going to have a little disco moment here yes. in the office, but you guys just keep on We're going. We're boogieing just, down. Yeah. Yeah, we're doing our little Woo. chair dance. It's about as lame as you can imagine. <laughs> so he's not exactly totally psyched about that idea. He's like, well, that might, there might be a need for that, but I, I can't really get passionate about a car wash. And then some other guy happens to mention that there's perhaps another opportunity besides scrubbing down cars, and that would be... A candy store. Now, let me just say... No matter where I moved, I'd be like, we need another candy store. Yeah, I would be one of those people who, if I lived next to a candy store, would <laughs> say, like, we need a candy store. Well, he thought, that's something I could really get behind. I like candy. Keep in mind, Mr. Crail was not a candy maker. And he, had never thought of being one before. <laughs> yeah, he had never even remotely studied anything about chocolatiering mm -hmm. or anything like that. He had, had no experience there, but he thought— this is an opportunity, and 
Durango, Colorado is a big tourist destination. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. So we thought, well, there is the possibility that that tourism industry could help make a business like that flourish. Mm -hmm. And at first, he wasn't even thinking necessarily about making his own company. He was looking at the possibility of opening up a store that would be related to an existing candy yeah, company. Yeah, a C's chocolate, C's candy. Yeah, C's company. candy. C's candy. But they didn't franchise at that time. Yeah, so he couldn't <laughs> just become a franchise operator because that was not an option. So mm-hmm. instead he thought, well, I guess I'll do this myself. And at the time, he was drawing about $6,000 per month from his interests in the company he had mm-hmm. co-founded, that CNI. CNI, which was enough for him to cover his costs of living and everything, but not exactly the startup capital you would use to launch a brand new business. No, no. So he also roped in two friends, uh, (laughs) or rather he got them to invest in the company, Jim Hilton and Mark Lipinski. Uh, Hilton at least had made fudge in the past. Yes. So he he came with the deep expertise in candy making. He was at least a hobbyist. And then Carell also took out a second mortgage on his house. He borrowed $50,000 in capital to start his little candy store. And so he starts looking for a location. And like I said, Durango, Colorado is a big tourist destination, and part of that is because Durango is on a rail line, the Durango and Silverton Narrow Gauge Railroad. So he wanted a location close to that because that would be where all the tourists were, but that also was some of the more expensive real estate in the town, so it would cost him $30,000 to secure that location. That's over half his capital. (laughs) Right. Now, just so that you guys know what this is all about, in case you're not familiar with narrow-gauge railroads, the name kind of tells you what it means. It means that the actual width of the railroad track is more narrow than what you would see as the standard. The standard, by the way, in case you're curious. I am curious, Jonathan. I was too. It's four feet, eight and a half inches, or 1,435 millimeters. So this was more narrow than that. And you can get tickets to ride on a train on the Durango and Silverton Narrow Gauge Railroad. They use original equipment that dates to the late 19th century. So we're talking like 1880s era train. Gosh. And you can ride on it. They even have a presidential uh, car where you can ride in luxury or you can ride in first class or – you know, steerage, essentially. (laughs) You're shoveling coal into the furnace to make the train go. Mm -hmm. I exaggerate for effect. (laughs) But this is a big tourist attraction. Yeah. And so he thought, well, locating my candy shop near that would mean that people who get off the train who are walking around to look at this picturesque town are going to see this little town candy shop. And what could be more charming? And people who ride trains probably are going to want some Some chocolate. Yeah, Yeah, I know. I do. So he bought his location, but he's still in San Diego. Yep. And uh, he, he starts looking around for things to furnish his shop with. So they get some antique scales to decorate with. They get these giant heavy marble slabs to make fudge on. They want to make their candy live, yeah. release their fudge in front of people to entertain. Folks, this is not an uncommon thing in candy stores. I know down in Savannah, Georgia, you've got the Savannah Candy Company. Oh, yeah, you got tons of, of little chocolate yeah. companies. And like Helen, Georgia mm-hmm. also. like the, All the little touristy towns in and, the area. You know, they dip their own apples and they pull their taffy and— mm-hmm. 
Some of them make fudge. It's very visually arresting. Like you yes. see it and you and you are fascinated and also it just looks delicious. I mean, you think about like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate mm-hmm. Factory and those montages. It's that kind of thing. And also you get the smell of the cooking candy, yeah. which just makes you hungry. And you learn the process too, which can be really cool. Like the yeah. fact that they use marble to help with the temperature and, mm-hmm. and and the moisture of the stuff they're working with. So it was a, a clever idea. It was one yes. that other candy shops had used successfully. And so it showed that Crail had been paying attention. Yes. Now, one of the other things that he bought in San Diego to bring with him was chocolates to sell. So yes. not fudge, but actually pre-made chocolates because he didn't know how to do that. Yeah, and neither did his buddy Jim, who had no. made fudge. He didn't know how to make chocolate. So they bought it from a guy named Everett Seeley, who operated a candy store over in San Diego. And a few other suppliers, like a division of Guitard. Guitard. <laughs> I've never known how to pronounce that chocolate company, but I do like their chocolate. So they have moved to Durango, 1981. And they're getting ready for the grand opening of their store. They had decided that they were going to open on Memorial Day in 1981. And they're there. They're ready to set up. They've secured the location. And their buddy Jim is literally on the road driving from California to Colorado hauling marble and chocolate. What could possibly go wrong? Well, we'll tell you right after this brief moment to thank our sponsors. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indulge your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. 
Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. Okay, so we've established the locations there. The chocolate and the marble are on their way. Jim has got the secrets of fudge locked away in his head. Almost immediately, things don't quite go according to plan. No. So very first, Jim gets a flat, like a flat tire, which doesn't keep him from getting to Colorado, but it does get him there late. Yeah. So they were going to open Memorial Day weekend. He gets there at about 9.30 p.m. local time, Friday Mm. night. Yeah. And they really tough it through. They burn the midnight oil and set up shop that night. Yep. They get everything ready to go, and then they turn in. Late, late, late that night, and then— They oversleep. Yeah, they don't wake up quite on time to get everything ready to go for opening. Now, I'll say, like, oversleep. I know on the weekend I like to sleep very, very late sometimes. Mm. Uh, But they overslept to a whopping 9 a.m. So then they get to the store, and uh, they encounter a second issue, which is that Jim, who had made fudge— had never made a batch larger than six pounds in his life. And that was going to be too little for it. For yes. Even for your first day, you're going to need more than six pounds of fudge. Yes. Also, he had never made fudge at an altitude of 6,512 feet, which, spoiler alert, is the altitude of Durango, Colorado. Yes. And, you know, I like to bake personally, mm-hmm. and I like to make candy. And that altitude and humidity in the air and all that really can mess you up if you don't plan for it. Oh, yeah. No, I am reminded of the time. My dad uh, made an incredible homemade fudge. It's been years since he's done it. Dad, if you're listening to this, make me some fudge. Make me some, too. But I remember (laughs) once when he decided to turn his fudge-making skills to divinity. Oh, And if you don't know what divinity is, folks, you got to come down to the southeast. We'll we'll treat you to some. But uh, his divinity did not take into account the temperature and humidity, and we ended up with divinity-flavored hockey pucks. Mm-hmm. They were like little Frisbees. Now, to make fudge at a high altitude, this is something that Jim would learn through bitter experience, or maybe <laughs> sweet experience because it was fudge. You have to decrease the amount of time you actually cook the fudge mm-hmm. because liquid will evaporate off of your cooking mixture much more quickly at higher altitudes yes. than they would at sea level. So general rule of thumb for all you prospective fudge makers out there is that you should deduct two degrees from your cooking temperature, we're talking Fahrenheit here, for every 1,000 feet of elevation. So since they were at more than 6,000 feet, they should have deducted about 12 degrees from their cooking temperature, but Jim didn't know that at the beginning of it. However, he figured it out eventually, and he cooked up a batch of a a 22-pound batch of fudge. Yeah, and they made a lot of flavors, too, that first weekend. And, you know, despite all these little hiccups, they had a really good opening weekend. They Mm -hmm. sold out of fudge. They made $850 the first day. Mm -hmm. And the second day was about as good, maybe a little bit better, because they remembered to bring the chocolate. Yeah, that was the other big problem. They had left the chocolate behind on opening day. Yeah, yeah. it's a good thing they had fudge and caramel apples and things like that. They they also got a request from some customers. They said, hey, do you do mail orders? And Crail's (laughs) like— Yeah, they hadn't even thought about it yet. No, and it would actually take them a little bit of time to test a mail order catalog. Oh, yeah. No, that the actual catalog would take several years before they would launch one of those, but they rapidly followed a philosophy, and this would stay true for much of the history of the company of— 
let's say yes and then, and then figure, figure it out. out. Yeah. yeah, and you know there are a lot of companies that do this to varying success. Yeah, but it really it really speaks to Grail's tenacity. Then they had this other problem where they didn't have good cold transportation to bring this chocolate over from California. Yeah, they didn't have refrigerated trucks yet. No, and, you know, I don't think Jim was going to constantly make that trip back and forth. Yeah, so they realized they were going to need to start making chocolate on the premises. Mm -hmm. So they reached out to Everett Seeley, the same man that they had bought the chocolate from. Now, he, at this point, was entering into retirement. Yes. And they said, could you teach us, oh, wise chocolatier? And he said, yes, grasshopper. So they set up shop in the most logical of places on top of a... Ping pong table. Yeah, that was weird. I mean, if you make if you make a truffle and it bounces, doesn't that mean it's fresh? I guess. <laughs> so this was also when Crail would have another mistake that would help define the company. This is also another interesting thing about this particular company is that mm-hmm. it's a company that was defined by mistakes, but not in a bad way. No. Like it was stuff that would end up kind of differentiating the company from other companies. I mean, it did have some negative impacts financially. But yeah, from a consumer standpoint, people loved it. And yes. the thing we're talking about here is where Crail had decided he's going to make some, well, we would call them turtles, but they call them bears, bears. in the Rocky Mountain speak. And it is a mixture of caramel and pecans, or Mm. caramel and pecans if you prefer, that's then dipped in chocolate. But the problem was the caramel and pecan clusters that Crail had made were about five times bigger than what they needed to be. Yes, Way, way too big. But they did not trash them. No. They dipped them in chocolate and sold Mm -hmm. them, and people loved them. Yeah. I mean, come on. You're you're like, oh, candy that's five times the size of normal candy. I would also love that. You know, and people loved watching them mess up and figure out how to fix their mistakes. So they'd be in store making their candies, and they'd make the core too big, and then they'd dip it, and it wouldn't look right again, so they'd dip it again. And they're— these candies became massive, and they had one peanut butter cup they made that was big enough that it got nicknamed the bucket. Yeah. So I want to eat that. This actually reminds me of uh, of experiences I've had where I've gone into, like, locally run businesses where the people running the business are very sincere. Mm-hmm. Sometimes things are not going exactly as planned, but it does come across as more charming because they don't let that derail them. They don't deny Mm -hmm. that there's an issue. They just, they either embrace the failure and incorporate it in some way or otherwise make you feel like you can kind of trust these people because they're they're not hiding away things, right? And I find that very endearing. And it sounds like the people of Durango, Colorado and the tourists who were visiting also did. So their first year, they made $180,000. Which, Sounds like a lot, but you got to remember that they had spent a good deal of money, in fact, more than their starting mm-hmm. investment capital, just getting things running that yeah, first year. The uh, 30K on, on the lease and then all of their supplies, all of their equipments and all of their resupplies as well. So the company spent quite a few years just trying to make up that loss. Also in 1982, just after they had launched, it became clear that while this was a a true passion project for Frank Crail, the same could not be said for Jim and Mark, his co-investors who helped launch the company back in the end of uh, 81. No, they both wanted out. um, And Frank bought their shares of the company. Yes. Now, 
Frank also would open up some additional stores after the success of his first one. He expanded out so that he owned four stores. Mm -hmm. It was an owned and operated business. And then he made another big decision that ultimately would affect the success of his company. He decided he was going to franchise. He wasn't going to be like Seize Candy. Yeah. And so the problem was, like many of the other incidents we've talked about before, he didn't have any experience in this. He didn't have any working knowledge of how this would work or even an infrastructure to support it. But he said, this is what I want to do. So he plunged into it. Now, he had a hope that by opening up more stores, if he could make them as successful as his first store, his primary store, Mm -hmm. he would make enough money to overcome the costs of operating the business. Yeah, because then you can buy in bulk a little bit more um, and split that supply cost between multiple locations that are all bringing in hopefully the same amount of revenue. Yeah, so this was was a big gamble because Mm -hmm. it could have just as easily been that each of those stores would have just added to the cost of operating. Yeah, or that they, if they were too close, they'd just split their customers. Right. Yeah, you end up not getting as much revenue because people just are choosing one store or the mm-hmm. other, but you're not, you're not, you're not effectively doubling or tripling your revenue anymore because yeah. you've you've diluted it. Uh, yeah, this was a, a pretty big risk, and it was one that did not immediately pay off either. No. So that also made it even scarier, right? Like it could have been a situation where because it was taking a long time to kind of get on solid financial ground, you could have seen this candy empire melt away. Oh, clever, Jonathan. I was going to say cookie crumbles, but that doesn't really work. Well, Crail was, you know, thinking of the brittleness of all of this situation. Okay, okay. I see where you're going. Yeah. (laughs) Because he spent nights up wondering if he could pay his employees for the week. He had to contact their suppliers saying, hey, we can't pay this invoice. Thankfully, a lot of people were really understanding and worked with him, which is... I wouldn't say the norm. No. It, it To me, it is pretty remarkable that he would talk to these suppliers and they seemed very understanding and would offer him extensions on paying back his debts. Mm-hmm. He was also having trouble, even though he was expanding his business, he was having trouble with that as well because he didn't have a whole lot of money. So it was difficult to attract people to run mm-hmm. the businesses who had experience both in the candy industry and just running a business in general. He was having trouble getting the talent he needed. So he, he faced a lot of different challenges at that moment. Even so, while he's facing all these challenges, he's still maybe by force of will alone <laughs> making this company grow to the yeah. point in 1986, he's ready to bring it public and to have an IPO on the NASDAQ. Yeah, and it took 16 years from that point for them to be financially sound. Yeah, you're talking about two decades of being in business before they were able to say, oh, we've paid off our debt the first time. And you see this all the time with like restaurants where people love this restaurant, but they just don't make enough money to stay afloat and they close and then you're really sad. Uh, The cost of operation is just too high sometimes. Yeah. And thankfully, this was not the case for the Rocky Mountain Chocolate Factory. But when they went public that same year, they had a revenue around $4.1 million that year, but they also had a net loss of $146,706. Yeah, that was not not great. And the next year, they were seeing a rise in revenue, but the losses were increasing even more. So this is where you start really getting into that feeling that you're in quicksand. It was up to $1.8 million, and the company had 55 stores in 13 states. Yeah, he had expanded quite a bit, but again, the cost of operations were outpacing the revenues. So yeah. in 1991, 
he didn't have much choice but to close some of those doors, right? Like 10 of them. Yeah. And that was also the year that they would first test out a mail order catalog for the Christmas season. Yeah, so about nine years after they opened. And then that helped a bit, right? Mm-hmm. So they were able to get things to turn around. They were able to get a positive revenue source coming in where they're starting to make profit. And part of that was helped by the fact that by franchising, they could charge franchise fees. Mm-hmm. So So people who wanted to run a Rocky Mountain chocolate company out of their town would pay this franchise fee, and in return, they would be allowed to use the name and the recipes, which is, of course, that's how franchising just tends to work in general. And it was only at this point that the franchising structure was starting to really pay off, where those franchise fees were helping make up some of the ground of operating a business that has a very high cost. In 1996, they were making revenues of about $187 million a year. They had 162 stores. Mm -hmm. And Frank was buying leases for stores to franchise faster than he could franchise them out. Mm. He ended up running a lot of them himself. There were, I think, 45 company owned at that time. And he was trying to launch a chain of hard candy stores at the time, too, called Fuzzy Wigs, which I think I've heard of Fuzzy Wigs. Well, I keep on thinking I've heard of that, except for the fact that that's very similar to the name Fuzzy Fezzy Wig, Wig, which is from, Christmas of course, Carol, Christmas Carol. Yeah, yeah you, you've been in— Multiple productions of Christmas Carol, so (laughs) you know all multiple characters. (laughs) Have you ever been Mrs. Fezziwig? I have. Well, there you go. Uh, Yeah, so again, Frank did not have the infrastructure to support a hard candy business. So (laughs) Much like Mr. Cratchit. But very much much in in keeping with his uh, M.O. up to that point. In 1997, the company had to undergo a a total restructuring. Mm And Frank did something very smart. He reached out and he managed to get someone who had experience as a chief financial officer to help really get this company under control. Yes. They closed more stores that weren't turning a profit. They sold some of their company-owned stores as franchises to franchisees. Mm -hmm. And uh, he sold off his fuzzy wig chain. So it wasn't very long-lasting. He was like, "Mm, I don't have the support structure for this hard candy store. This might have been a— Biting off more than you can chew. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was not an everlasting gobstopper, that's for sure. So uh, then in 1999, another company came up mm-hmm. and offered the possibility of an acquisition. Yeah, Whitman's tried to buy Rocky Mountain Chocolate Factory for $16 million, which is pretty good. That's yeah, not, I mean, that's especially when you sit there and think this all started with launching a tiny little candy shop in a relatively small town. And I could have seen being like, you know, I wanted to open this candy store. I wanted it to be easy and fun. And it's just been trial and tribulation after trial and tribulation. I've been been chasing making enough money to cover the cost of operating for so long. But Mm -hmm. that restructuring had been really— effective. And Crail was thinking, I should really see where this is going. I should Mm -hmm. really, because I think we're on a new path now. And so ultimately, he decided to turn down the offer. And we'll learn about what happened next after we come back from this quick break to thank our sponsor. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. 
Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indulge your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melody. Melon Serum. This next generation serum has the power of melon leaf stem cell technology. It's melon leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty System for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. All right, so now things start to turn around and get a little bit better. It's still going to take a few years to really get rolling. But in 2001, they got themselves a new logo, Mm -hmm. and they started really pushing the sale of their product for gifts. Hey, you want to buy our chocolate for Valentine's Day, for Easter. For Christmas, for birthdays. For anniversaries, yeah. Yeah. They also added sugar-free candies to their retinue. Mm -hmm. They modernized their stores. They like to sell a lot of chocolates that were old-fashioned in an old-fashioned packaging because there's a nostalgia that people like with that. Right, and it's associated with that whole mystique of being that small town yes. and, and and classic Americana. But now they're trying to appeal to a broader market. And so as part of that, they also start selling their chocolates in other stores like mm-hmm. F.A.O. Schwartz. And Costco. Costco as well, right. And they also began to design a way where they could have a presence in shopping malls without Mm -hmm. having to pay a huge amount to have a storefront there. Yes. They came up with a tiny little kiosk Mm -hmm. that was a quarter of the square footage of their normal footprint. Right. And obviously that meant that you were limiting things that made the stores so charming, like, you Mm -hmm. know, watching people hand dip candy apples and that kind of stuff. But at the same time, it allowed them to get a an entry point in like high-end shopping malls that yeah. otherwise would have been prohibitively expensive to have a space there. And by this time, their revenues are up to $19.4 million. In January of 2003 is kind of when they really took off. Their stocks started steadily growing and did for two years. They mm-hmm. hit their highest mark in July of 2005. They also were able to finally pay off their debt. At least up to that point. Yeah. <laughs> it'll happen again 
don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> but but in 2005, I mean, like considering that this was a company that had been sort of chasing that goal since it was started, essentially, because the the startup costs were so high and Crail had to borrow so much money on his own account in order to be able to, to launch it. To finally get to the point where the debt was paid must have been a huge moment within the company. Yeah, and their stock prices have dropped a little bit since then. It's not as strong as it was in 2005, but it is doubly as strong as it was before then, back when they first went public. So 2007, they became the largest chocolate retailer in the United States based on locations, Mm -hmm. beating out companies like Seas and Godiva. Fun fact, they also beat out Seas and Godiva in a blind taste test. Yes. It was one of those things that the company touted forever was that when people were looking for a chocolate that tasted rich and natural, theirs was the brand that got the highest marks in a blind taste test. So... They, they were very happy about that. Also in 2007, they made number 80 on the Forbes small business list, Yep, which doesn't seem that high of a number, but there are so many small businesses out there. Like, oh, yeah. When you think about just a sheer number of small businesses, it actually is pretty yeah, impressive. Yeah, pretty impressive. And they were able to pay out annual dividends of 40 cents a share for mm-hmm. their stocks. And uh, they began to really find people who were serious about making the candy store business a primary business, business right? Yeah. Not not just, oh, I think it would be charming to have a chocolate shop. Yeah, which, you know, a lot of people still do. There yeah. are a lot of hobbyists in the baking and candy and food industry. But when you have to buy in for a quarter million, it's going to be more than the hobby. Yeah. Unless you're just like super duper rich. And they grew internationally successful. So they had franchises in Canada, the Philippines, South Korea, and the United Arab Emirates. They still mm-hmm. do. And they uh, entered an agreement in 2012 to open stores in Japan as well. Yes. And that agreement was, it's pretty intense because Japan had to open 10 stores a year for 10 years to wow. meet the agreement. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. They today produce more than 300 different types of candies based off their own recipes. Yes. So it's not like it's, you know, the some like generic thing. Yeah. They're all very specific to the company. And they still make, in their individual stores, they still make Candy Live. Now, it's time to talk about some decisions that also led to more debt. Yes. And this is one that really gets my head scratching. And a little bit less transparency, too. So, so let's see. I remember the initial frozen yogurt boom that happened in, like, the late 80s, early 90s. TCBY? hmm And there was another one that happened not too long ago to the point where— so there's a there's a place near Atlanta called Decatur, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Decatur, Georgia, it sort of has a small-town feeling, even though it's still within the perimeter of 285, yeah. which— a lot of people say anything inside 285 is essentially Atlanta. I mean, I'd say Decatur is pretty bustling. But but it's still, you know, it still has sort of a small town feel. And yet that's a place where at one point I think they had three or maybe four frozen yogurt mm-hmm. places. So in 2010, they launched a Aspen Leaf Yogurt LLC as a subsidiary company. And then that would end up being supplemented when they acquired the assets of a company called Yogurtini International in 2013. Mm -hmm. And then they used the combined assets of both of those to get a majority share in a company called Uswirl. They got a 60% uh, share of the equity of Uswirl Mm -hmm. through leveraging these assets, making them the majority owners. And 
Again, this was an attempt to kind of diversify, grow the business, kind of like yeah. the hard candies fuzzy wig thing was a few years before. Because Krill really thought that the frozen yogurt market, it's very fragmented, all these independent little owners and franchises and things mm-hmm. like that. And he thought by combining those, you could strengthen their business and you could cut costs because now you're buying products in bulk and things like that. They kept on going by acquiring a couple of other companies like Yogli Mowgli and mm-hmm. Cherry Berry. There's... Cherry Berry litigation as well. I read about that in a recent (laughs) shareholder call that happened uh, with the Rocky Mountain. But all of these decisions ended up making kind of a a draining effect Mm -hmm. on the overall company. The hope at one point was that they would create a new corporate structure. Yes. Where all the frozen yogurt stuff would be lumped in along with their chocolate business Mm -hmm. so that the weaknesses of the frozen yogurt would somewhat be kind of masked by the success of the chocolate. Yes, and that was not a very popular idea. It got voted down. By the Um, shareholders, yeah. People like transparency. Yeah, they didn't want to see a company where they see the profits dropping, and the reason Mm -hmm. the profits are dropping are not because— the sales are doing more poorly, but that the losses from the frozen yogurt side of the business were being offset by the success of the chocolate side. I mean, but that being said, Crail pushed his way through to success with his chocolate stores. So maybe he's on the right path for frozen yogurt as well. Yeah. By 2017, they were able to pay off a lot of that debt that Mm -hmm. was incurred as a result of making these acquisitions, right? So that was looking good. 2018 has been a little bit more of a rough year. They've seen a bit of a slide. Uh, nothing catastrophic. No, they're still looking like they'll be profitable this year. Yeah, it's just that it's it's a lower profit than the previous year. And mm-hmm. generally speaking, obviously, we like to see growth year over year. Yes. Uh, but that is the general story. Yes. However, we have some fun facts. One that I definitely want to mention So we talked about bears. Mm -hmm. That is not the biggest monster this company has ever made. In 1996, for the San Francisco Zoo, they made a special commission, which was a seven-foot-long chocolate alligator Mm. that weighed 430 pounds. It was estimated to be more than a million calories. (laughs) Oh, God. It was worth $6,000. A $6,000, seven-foot-long chocolate alligator. It, it's such a waste. It is such a waste. Now, you could, you could buy your own chocolate alligator, but it was a fraction of the size. Yeah, well, you wouldn't be able to eat through an alligator that big before the chocolate went all spotty and bad. So. And, and like, like that dusty kind of chocolate, yeah. that, that sort of like, yeah. that chocolate it, dust that appears. Until it turned into chalk. Yeah, so that would be the largest chocolate that I could find. Like, you know, for a company that was famous for making oversized chocolates, Mm -hmm. I think even that is saying something. Also, another fun fact is that they made a cereal with Kellogg's. Yes. That is very similar to the chocolatey Special K cereal you can get now. I didn't know there was a chocolatey Special K cereal. Oh, yes, there is. Oh, no. Um. (laughs) Sorry, Jonathan. You're spelling my doom. But yeah, they they partnered up in 2013, I think. They had this cereal that actually people liked pretty well. Now, I tried to see if I could buy it online and bring some into the studio with me. Oh, my gosh. Um, you would Jonathan just, would kill me. We should be thankful because all you would be hearing in this podcast is just crunching crunch, mouth crunch, sounds. It would be like yeah. the worst ASMR ever made. I'd be, uh, I'd be talking with my mouth full. Yeah. Anyhow, I couldn't find it. That's not to say it's not still out there somewhere. I just couldn't find it. Yeah. 
Well, also, we, we're located pretty far from the home base of yes. this company. So I think it's time for us to sign off and perhaps go downstairs in Pont City Market where we can go to the candy store. Yes. That we have a candy store in here. I'm awful hungry now. Because I am craving chocolate <laughs> like nobody's business. So we hope you enjoyed this episode and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Ariel Kasten. Bye-bye. If you would like to learn more about what we've talked about, as well as keep track of all of our episodes, make sure you visit our website at thebrinkpodcast.show. Or you can email us at feedback at thebrinkpodcast.show. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.